Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to LawPod. I am Rachel Killeen, a senior lecturer here in Queen's University School of Law and your host on today's episode. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Professor Louise Malander. Louise is a professor of law here at Queen's University Belfast, where she conducts research in the fields of international human rights law, international criminal law, and the law and politics in political transitions. So between early 2019 and late 2021, Louise was working as an international consultant where she was supporting public officials and civil society in Ukraine. At that time, this group was developing a legal framework to enable the reintegration of the territory and the people from temporarily occupied territories in Ukraine, including annexed Crimea and the self-proclaimed autonomous republics in eastern Ukraine. So as you will be more than aware, this work has been overtaken by the recent escalation of conflict in the area. And following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in March this year, Louise has been reflecting on the potential role of transitional justice in Ukraine's uncertain future, and in particular what lessons we might learn from transitional justice work that has already been carried out in Ukraine in recent years. Last month, Louise published a blog in QUB's QPOL website in which she contextualised the current conversation about international accountability for crimes perpetrated in Ukraine and outlined some of the recent debates about what transition could and maybe should look like. So she's kindly agreed to come on LawPod to discuss some of these reflections. And Louise, uh, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Lovely to have you. As you all know who are listening, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to an eruption of international condemnation, and in particular to calls for prosecutions of Vladimir Putin, but also other senior Russian figures involved in the conflict. The International Criminal Court had already been investigating Ukraine, or at least had a preliminary investigation into Ukraine. But following Russia's actions, the prosecutor, Karim Khan, uh, declared that he was immediately opening an investigation. Uh, On the sidelines, Ukraine has also been working on proposals to establish a specific special court, which would enable the trying of Russian leaders with the crime of aggression. So that wouldn't fall within the ICC's current jurisdiction in Ukraine. So Louise, as you note in your blog, these calls for criminal accountability mark a bit of a shift uh, from the dominant international approach which had existed emerging following the violence in Donetsk and Lugansk regions of Ukraine. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about why there's been that shift away from um, not so much an accountability response to something that centres international criminal accountability in the way that it has recently. Sure. Thank you, Rachel. Um, So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the current war uh, between Russia and Ukraine really began in 2014 when Russia um, invaded and uh, the, <laughs> occupied Crimea and supported the establishment of the autonomous republics um, in the Donbass region. This this led to an armed conflict then between the Ukrainian government and armed militias in the Donbass area who were backed by Russia. So in response to that violence in 2014 and 2015, the international community, really led by the OSCE and France and Germany, who were acting together um, in a group called, as a norm- called the Normandy Format, 
Those actors tried to mediate peace agreements between Russia and Ukraine. And that led to a series of agreements, which are all called Minsk 1, Minsk 2, because they were negotiated in Minsk. These agreements did result in a reduction of violence. The, the intensity of the conflict diminished following them, but it didn't end. Um, and largely many of the provisions of the Minsk agreements remained unimplemented when the current invasion erupted in February this year. With respect to transitional justice, the Minsk agreements were largely silent. Although war crimes had been committed in the early stages of the war, the agreements mentioned nothing to do with truth or justice or reparations for victims. Instead, what they said there should be is legislation enacted to grant amnesty and pardon for all crimes committed in connection with the violence in the Donbass area. So that language is very broad. There's no scope there for limiting crimes, at least on the face of the Minsk agreements. Um, so those, those agreements are obviously supported by the, the mediators involved, but they also received a unanimous endorsement from the UN Security Council. So for that reason, in my blog, I talk about those positions being the, the dominant international approach to Ukraine at that time. So these, these provisions in the Minsk agreements were very controversial in Ukraine. You know, the war is ongoing and at those times it's difficult to think about compromise, to think about, you know, um, flexibility in punishment, of course. And so these these are very difficult and they were not enacted by the time uh, Russia invaded earlier this year. But I think what the, the fact that these provisions were there and maintained international support shows that the international community was not keen on pushing for accountability during the early stages of this war. You know, Russia had in, it had in, in, invaded, had seized a large part of Ukrainian territory, was, was supporting militias elsewhere, and there wasn't a large push for accountability at that stage. Really, the international response was more in keeping with how they've responded to Russian war crimes in Syria, in Chechnya. There's kind of a longer backstory here. I think that the violence should be understood against. Obviously, the one exception to that was the International Criminal Court that you mentioned that had had a preliminary examination and had decided in 2020 that an investigation could be opened but it didn't do anything after 2020. The decision kind of sat there and it was only once the recent invasion happened that then the investigation was formally opened. So, as you mentioned, against this backdrop of international support for amnesty and an absence of any genuine calls for accountability, what we saw as soon as the war broke out was a really, really rapid shift into language using language describing Putin and those around him as, as war criminals, as potentially genocidaires, as responsible for aggression. And a big effort to, among some parts of the world, to push for accountability. You know, primarily in the form of international justice, but of course we're also seeing sanctions being imposed against uh, leading figures in Russia and you know their family members, those around them. I think it, it is interesting that the energy for this is coming primarily from European and Western Anglophone countries. So I think 30, 37 of the 41 countries that have referred the situation to the ICC, ICC would fall within that group. So it's not something that's necessarily replicated across the world as a whole. Um, in, in addition to that, we are seeing, I think in recent weeks, national prosecution services in several European countries are starting to open criminal investigations domestically into abuses that are being reported by refugees in those territories. So we're seeing you know, efforts at the international multilateral level and also at the national level within within European states. And of course, within Ukraine as well, there's um, extensive documentation efforts. So you, you asked me why this is happening as well. Um, and I think it is 
stark. For those of us who've followed international criminal law for a long time, there's a very marked difference between the response to Ukraine and the response that we've seen to other serious situations of human rights violations, Syria, Yemen, what's happening in Ethiopia at the moment, for example. You don't tend to see this level of rapid response and high energy in relation to it. On the one hand, I think some of their responses are deeply understandable. You know, I, I think Russia is acting in a manner that appears lawless. And so in some ways it's natural to want to try and reassert law in the face of lawlessness. I think also we are all seeing every day the horrors of what this war is bringing. We're seeing the imageries of the destroyed cities. We're seeing stories of broken lives. It's really hard to follow that footage and not feel a degree of empathy with those who are suffering and to not feel this is wrong. And so, you know, this needs to be punished. This need, there needs to be a response to this. And so I think there's, you know, public outpourings of solidarity in many countries. I mean, walking around Belfast, you see Ukrainian flags everywhere these days. And um, that's not, you know, not, not, not unique to here. It's, I think, a feature in many countries. So I think that amounts to pressure on governments as well to act. And I think being able to support accountability demands, provide states with the means of showing solidarity with Ukraine. I think the other part of this is that Ukraine is asking for this. The Ukrainian governments have put in a lot of effort and energy into calling for international criminal accountability. And I think for them, this is part of their broader diplomatic responses to the war. If you say Putin is a war criminal, then you're, you know, you're, you're using that to appeal for aid and assistance. You're saying, look at, the, look at what we're struggling with. We're struggling with aggression here. We need your backing. We need your support. We need you to send us weapons. We need you to consider us joining the European Union. This, this uh, framing in terms of international criminality, I think is really important as a basis for, for the rest of their diplomatic endeavours. Um, I think it is going to pose a few challenges for their field, though. Um, it's been notable that quite quickly a number of voices, critical international criminal law scholars, but particularly activists and politicians in the global south, are looking at the West's response to this and saying, well, you can do this. We can act really quickly. Why is this not happening elsewhere? Or now that we have these mechanisms in place, are we going to do this in the future? Is this how things are going to work? And in a field that for a long time has been marked by criticisms of selectivity, it's going to be really interesting to see what does this do to the legitimacy of the field? Are we going to learn from this and do better in the future? Or is this going to amplify some of those pre-existing concerns? Yeah, thanks, Louise. And I can only imagine what it feels like to be caught up in one of the many other atrocities that you referred to there and watch this concerted effort gather around Ukraine, which does not in any way, way mean that Ukraine doesn't deserve that response. It just raises, as you say, questions about who else might deserve such a response that we don't evoke such empathy for, particularly in the in the West, as, as you say. I think there's a whole separate tangent we could go down there, but I want to return to Ukraine's own efforts around transitional justice and in particular to their draft bill on the principles of state policy on the transition period. So as you note in your blog in January 2022, shortly before the invasion, the Ukrainian government withdrew that draft bill. Could you tell us a little bit about what this draft bill was meant to do and why you think a decision was made in the end to withdraw the legislation? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the draft law was intended to create a legislative framework to set out the principles that would govern how Ukraine would approach reintegrating the people and territory of the temporarily occupied areas when the conflict came to an end. And it's to do that, it was meant to set out a number of principles 
that would inform how they do how they go about this work um and in some cases it brought together work that was already been done because Ukraine has already been doing transitional justice activities for a number of years so it was, it was talking about you know integrating all these approaches within a broader peace building strategy but it was also pointing to what would happen in the future uh, you know what, what if there if um the Ukrainian territory becomes reintegrated, how will the Ukrainian state respond to that? How would it manage it? And so this law was, was meant to give that sort of signposting. And I think that's quite an important endeavour around transparency and um, providing a roadmap for people for what it would look like. Um, the law itself as a, as a framework document is quite, um, it gives quite a headline issues. There are some sections, if it's particularly if it's dealing with processes that are already in place that are quite detailed, some of it's quite vague. And the intention was that it was then meant to be followed up with other legislation that would then fill in those gaps. Unlike the Minsk process, this was intended to be a Ukrainian response to this, not something that was mediated. So it was them looking at the problems that they were grappling with now, with victims who've been displaced from the eastern parts of the country, with people who are suffering as a result of war crimes that have been committed, and looking at what, what can be done to address their needs now and what would need to be done in the future. And it provided for a much more comprehensive approach to transitional justice, including a limited form of amnesty, but also criminal accountability for war crimes and serious human rights violations, vetting processes, work around documentation and memorialization. So there's a whole raft of different issues that it was uh, proposing would be started now or, or in the future. The drafting of this legislative proposal went, went on for a number of years and was informed by quite an extensive consultation process in Ukraine and internationally. And that included, once there was a legislative draft last summer, submitting that to, to the OSCE's Venice Commission for feedback. And that commission's report was published in October 2021. And it makes for quite interesting reading. You can see it online. Um, the, the Venice Commission found a number of uh, strengths in the bill. There were a number of things that it was quite positive about, but it also expressed a number of concerns about certain aspects of the proposals. Um, and that that's where it was sitting uh, in late autumn this year. It was before the Ukrainian parliament. It was meant to be enacted and it didn't happen for a number for a period of time. It was stalled. And then in January, the government took the decision to withdraw the legislation. And so you're thinking it was very late in January, so it's a few weeks before the war started. The official government statement on this said it was withdrawing it in order to look at amending the law in light of the feedback received from the Venice Commission. Um, but I hadn't said that in the, the three months since the Venice Commission had issued the feedback. So many of the media reports at the time and this kind of corresponded with things that had been reported in the media over the preceding months. The, the, those reports were suggesting that it was pressure from the Normandy format countries that caused Ukraine to withdraw the legislation. So those countries were concerned that in pushing for accountability, the, the Minsk agreement commitments to enact amnesty were being undermined and they saw a tension between them and they, they viewed the document as a sign of Ukraine unilaterally stepping away from the Minsk process. So there was pressure on them not to do that. And that that's part of what the speculation is for why that legislation was, was withdrawn. I mean, that's fascinating in light of, as we have just been talking about, this rapid shift towards criminal accountability that followed. So you mentioned there that there were both strengths that were highlighted about this draft law and also concerning elements. And in your blog, you also describe being both incredibly impressed by the transitional justice efforts in Ukraine in particular, 
by the creativity that was shown and the adherence to international norms, but also that you had some concerns about the bill. And in particular, they might be furthering quite a one-sided approach to justice. I wonder if you could expand on those concerns and more broadly, the risks of adopting a one-sided approach to transitional justice. Sure. Um, so I think since, since the Maidan protests in 2014, where Ukraine has adopted transitional justice, it's largely been orientated to, to different visions of what Ukraine's future could look like. Um, one element of it, of it is working towards building Ukraine to be you know, a Western liberal democratic state that's orientated towards the European Union. Um, the, the other strand of it is looking at the, the, pre, the, the pre-invasion reality that parts of Ukrainian territory were occupied by Russia or um, by the, the semi-autonomous republics. And it was trying to assert a future vision of Ukraine as you know, a sovereign state within its internationally recognised borders and able to um, you know, bring together its Russian and Ukrainian speaking population. So there were these two different visions, one about the system of governance and one about what the territory and peoples of the Ukraine look like. Those two things don't necessarily need to be intention. They can imagine ways in which they would fit together quite nicely. But I think part of the challenge has always been that in trying to push particular pro-Western approaches, there has been an attempt to re-understand, reinterpret Ukrainian history in a way that privileges Ukrainian national narratives and counteracts some of the more Soviet narratives that existed in the past. That you know, that's not unique to Ukraine. <laughs> a lot of transitional societies have this phenomenon where memory is reinterpreted and reunderstood, and there's efforts to um, challenge previously dominant uh, narratives. So in Ukraine, you can think about what, you know this being a justifiable approach. You know, if you think of the um, the Holodomor or the Great Famine that took place during the Soviet rule, in which millions of people died as a result of really brutal and deliberately brutal, I think, agra- you know, ag- agrarian policies that were enforced by a totalitarian regime. You know, so the, the, there you can see why Ukrainian nationalists may want to look at that period of our past and of their past and think about how do we understand this differently? What what is the Ukrainian story of this? But I think what's problematic for the transitional justice law when we're thinking about the more recent conflict in the Donbass is that we see a similar trajectory where they are privileging a Ukrainian nationalist narrative of that violence and not allowing space to recognize that Russian-speaking populations, or particularly those in the temporarily occupied territories, might have different experiences of the conflict and different understandings of its causes and consequences. So when I say that the, the, the draft bill put forward a one-sided approach, you see that through the language of the bill. It ref- continually refers to the aggressor state, all of those things. But also when it defines victims, it talks about victims of Russian aggression. During the early parts of this war in 2014-2015, the, the um, Ukrainian military committed war crimes. The UN has been pre- was pressing them for a long time to pursue accountability for that. And so there are people who are victims of, of the Ukrainian state itself, but the law didn't allow space to recognise that. When its work on historical memorialization was talking about building museums you know, in, the, in the Donbass area to set out the Ukrainian national memory of what the war was, to try and educate people into the Ukrainian nationalist narrative. And you can imagine ways in which that might be alienating 
for people in those territories. So it doesn't allow space for the Ukrainian narrative to be inclusive, to recognize the multiplicity of experiences people might have and the multi- different ways in which they can experience their, their identities. So um, I think the challenges with that is, for me, um, is that it understands the violence since 2014 is primarily an interstate one. Something that it's, it's Russian aggression against Ukraine and that, that, that's the problem. That's the cause of the violence. But of course, there are Ukrainians involved in this as well. And there are often tensions between um, Russian, Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers in Ukraine going back to independence. It's one of the reasons why Crimea has always had a special status in the Ukrainian constitution. So there, you know, these tensions are pre-existing and I think those get glossed over within this kind of Ukrainian nationalist narrative. And I would worry too that the future that Ukraine wants, wanted to create for itself at that stage of, and hopefully still does, of a, an integrated territory where the different communities can be reconciled and feel part of that state, where a narrative is pushing only the perceptions of one side of that conflict and transitional justice is designed to deliver primarily for victims of one side of that conflict, it will undermine Ukraine's ability to achieve the the objective that it desires. It will lead to further alienation, distrust in the state institutions, and um, undermine the possibility of future reconciliation, I think. What you're describing seems both deeply contextualised to the Ukraine experience, but also has threads of complexity that we can find in so many different conflicts in the aftermath of conflict. We can see the commonalities and we can draw from our own research in different environments and think about how that conversation could be applied in those contexts. So to end then, I wanted to reflect a little bit on the lessons learned within transitional justice theory and transitional justice practice. So in the blog, because in the blog you're focusing on these themes of both amnesty, impunity, accountability, prosecutions, this kind of narrative, you say that we can learn from transitional justice theory and practice that a focus on either one of those things, amnesty or prosecution, is unlikely to deliver meaningful and lasting peace and reconciliation in Ukraine. So I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on that final point and maybe reflect on what a more holistic approach to transitional justice might involve in Ukraine. Sure. Um, I think before I answer that, I'm going to give myself a big caveat at the start. You know, I think many of us working in the field of transitional justice know that the field and its mechanisms of practice have evolved over a number of decades, but it's only really been the last maybe 15 years where there's started to be a concerted effort to think about the impact of transitional justice. And I think the data we have at the moment remains somewhat piecemeal, somewhat contradictory. And so it is it's difficult to be very robust around saying this is the impact that certain mechanisms will have. But saying that, I think um, we can look at you know the experience of particular countries that have had transitions and try and draw some lessons from that. So my own research over a number of years is primarily focused on amnesties. And I think it's clear that where societies introduce amnesty laws that do, um, do not provide for truth or reparations for victims, um, those measures are unlikely to meet the needs of victims or, or society to promote reconciliation, to promote healing, etc. And I think we can look at a context such as Spain, where there was a blanket amnesty known as the Pact of um, Forgetting introduced during the transition, transition from the Franco regime. So that in that context, the transition was successful. Spain was able to move from dictatorship to 
a consolidated democracy. But today, even decades after the horrors of the Spanish Civil War and the abuses of the Franco regime, victims and descendants are still continuing to, par- to press for redress, press for different measures of justice. This amnesty didn't close the door and any of that stuff, and it still is something that people are, are, are fighting for there. I think to provide an example on the other side relating to prosecutions, a number of years ago, um, I did fieldwork in Bosnia-Herzegovina with Bryce Dixon from, from the law school here at Queen's. And we were looking at questions of amnesty and accountability in that context. And so I've, you know, I've continued to maintain an interest in the, in the place and the years since then. And what always struck me is that Bosnia is somewhere where a lot of effort has been put into international criminal justice. We've had the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and also hybrid courts, the War Crimes Chamber um, set up in Bosnia that's now become part of the national court system. So you, as a result, you've had thousands of people who've been prosecuted, but you haven't had any other transitional justice measure, framework measures. There's been very little truth recovery. There's been very little reconciliation. And uh, I think what's clear is that peace in Bosnia remains very uneasy. There remains a lack of trust in public institutions, and uh, you know, periodically there are there are fears among the population that war will return. You know, at the, you hear you news accounts of people going in panic buying whenever there's particular um, political crises within the country, and so it's something that it, the the trials happened. They delivered accountability, but it didn't go far enough into helping the country reach some sort of sustainable, deeper sense of peace. So. You know, based on those experiences, though, I say one side, one approach or the other does not really work. So I think a holistic approach is more important. But I find it hard to be prescriptive about what a holistic approach should be, because, of course, they need to be tailored to the particular context of each transitional society. So if we think about what a holistic approach in Ukraine might need to be, you know, at this stage, it's very hard to know when this conflict will end and what form the resolution of the conflict would take. But I think we can be fairly certain that we'll be dealing with a situation in which there's a highly traumatized population. Uh, that's going to include ten, you know, thousands of injured persons. There are going to be millions of displaced persons and people who are refugees in other countries. The civilian infrastructure is going to be heavily damaged and completely destroyed in some cities, such as Mariupol. Um, also, the country is going to be trying to build peace in a context where it is going to be fearful of aggression from its much more powerful neighbour. Um, and there might be a need to rebuild relationships in Ukraine and deal with some of the unresolved issues from Soviet rule and from the Maidan protests as well, which are still, which are still there. And so it's going to be looking at all of these really complex um, interrelated challenges, and particularly at a time when the economy will be very weakened, because that's a common feature of conflict. So I think the situation will be highly challenging. But on a more positive note, Ukraine, unlike other transitional societies, won't be starting from scratch. Since 2014, it's already done a lot of work around transitional justice. So there have already been a number of law reform efforts. There's more that needs to be done. There's a whole um, civil society being really active in drafting laws to um, update the criminalization of war crimes in domestic law and ensure that crimes against humanity are criminalised in domestic law as well. So there's more that could be done there. But nonetheless, there's been extensive law reform. There's been a lot of capacity building um, around 
transitional justice and international human rights law um, within civil society, within uh, the, the government departments as well. And I think as part of that, there's been a really extensive national conversation about this over a number of years. So the Ukrainian population will be aware of transitional justice and its concepts in a way that perhaps isn't the case in other transitional societies. So I, th I think there, there's a lot that's already been done. And I think what's been really interesting too is that all of that prior experience is already coming to, um, coming into use now while this current invasion is ongoing. So it's notable that the Ukrainian prosecutor's office very quickly set up a, a, a system for people to be able to document in real time abuses that they were finding and record that information. Other civil society groups are doing the same as are um, at some other states. And so what we're seeing is a lot of energy around this already. That, that learning about how do we document human rights violations, how do we gather this information, what are we doing it for? is already informing responses today. Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, we're having this conversation while we're very much still in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And as you say, we don't really know when this is going to end or what kind of ending that mm -hmm. might be. But still, we are already beginning both within Ukraine and as an international community to reflect on transitional justice as a framework for thinking about Ukraine. I wonder if you have any final thoughts on what the role is of transitional justice in a state where conflict is an ongoing reality? Is it just, as you say, about, you know, gathering evidence about crimes and having these conversations? Or is there a role to play in facilitating the transition? Or to the contrary, can it be an inhibitor of peace? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't think the transitional justice field has sufficiently grappled with it. You know, you'll, you'll know as well as I do, Rachel, that when the field began, it came from the transitions from dictatorship in South America. And then it looked at how transitional justice could be used in peace agreements at the end of conflict. Today, we're increasingly seeing calls for transitional justice during conflict, but the how we understand it as, a, as objectives and what can be done is not something that the field has really grappled with theorising. But I think we often see different objectives subscribed to transitional justice in the context. I mean, first and foremost, while a conflict's ongoing, there are victims. There are you know, current victims, there are future victims. And transitional justice in the sense that it includes um, integral reparations. You know, that they can look at how you rehabilitate victims and provide medical support for them, how you can provide for restitution, compensation, all of those things. That can happen while a conflict is still ongoing. So you can do that sort of practice. If we think of things like DDR, disarmament, demobilization, reintegration as falling within the transitional justice framework, that too can happen during conflict and often does, where different um, measures are put in place to encourage people to lay down their weapons. Um, we, but we also see you know, documentation happening during, uh, during the conflict, as we mentioned, and that can be future orientated. It can be around trying to gather an evidence base for future truth recovery and criminal accountability. Sometimes it's also used for advocacy during the conflict and the, the style, you know, the, the traditional style of human rights and, you know, investigations that, that where you document these materials and you use it to say this is what's happening in this country. So we're seeing that happening in Ukraine too. Um, so I think there's a lot of different practical things that transitional justice can do while a conflict is ongoing. And there, I think there is often an assumption within transitional justice that it is intended to bring parties together in different ways that is intended to deter violations in some way you know part of the reason for um publicizing violations and naming those who are responsible for them when a conflict is ongoing is to try and encourage them to refrain from certain types of violations um 
I, I'm not sure how conclusive the evidence is on that strategy working, but there are ways in which people who, who advocate for transitional justice while accomplishes on, ongoing hope that it can be used in certain ways to tip the balance towards negotiations and towards peace being reached. And I guess just on a final note, I was conscious last, last week I listened to a speech by President Zelensky to Chatham House's Ukraine Forum, which is an excellent uh, discussion forum at the moment for, for events in Ukraine. And he said that for him, the bridges to peace remain open, that negotiations remain a possibility. He said his only red lines for negotiations starting is that uh, Russia withdraws behind the contact lines that were in place before the recent invasion. And he also said that for him, victory is Ukraine being able to exercise control over its people, over its territory, for its people to feel safe and for the refugees to return. That is a less punitive uh, vision of victory than some of the things we're hearing at the moment. And I think it leaves space for, for peace to be built, peace to be achieved. And I think within that, you can you know, see the transitional justice would play a role in trying to meet the needs of the victims. And I think as well, what you're highlighting is the hopefulness of transitional justice when it starts to slowly grind its gears, even while violence is ongoing. It's also a demonstration of commitment to an after and to a possibility of rebuilding. And in that sense, while it's not perfect, it remains somewhat of a hopeful and kind of human-centric response to violence and continues to, to have a place. Well, I think that's right. I think that's why we've been working in this field for so long. <laughs> yeah. We believe in a better future. <laughs> uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think it's been, re it's been great, really challenging questions. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Louise. Thanks for coming on to LawPod.